0: system detects time stream error Horrific error. anomaly detected must reset time stream to continue hero adventure error horror month protocols now active horror across the decades detected welcome nerds to the darkest timeline welcome to horror month on the amazing nerd show
1: hey this is christian hey this is damon and this is the amazing nerd show all right on this week's podcast
2: we're breaking down the finale of she hulk and episode six of andor we also have reviews for werewolf by night hellraiser 2022 and house of the
1: dragon plus for this week's horror month through the decades we're talking the 1990s and we're breaking down the latest episode of AEW. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star
2: review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some amazing nerd show swag. Let's get into the news. Every week, we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of Nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters. We're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning potential spoilers for upcoming films and shows ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been
1: warned. All right, so this is a really slow news week for some reason,
2: but up first, we have a whole lot of film delays
1: for the MCU. Like wrestling promotions, maybe film slates should simply come with a subject to change warning, as THR reports in about delays for some of Marvel's heavy hitters. This all seemed to kick off when the director of Blade left right before production, which now pushes it from its November 3rd, 2023 release to now September 6th, 2024, which started a domino effect as Deadpool 3 is moving from September 6th to now November 8th, 2024. Fantastic Four going from you know November 8th, 2024 to February 14th, 2025, and lastly, Avengers Secret Wars is now going from November 7th, 2025 to May 1st, 2026. Though it is good to note that Avengers Kang Dynasty has yet to be mentioned as being pushed, you know, still holding on to its May 2nd, 2025 release, which would then put, you know, the two Avengers films a year apart rather than them being in the same year.
2: Well, I mean, when the announcement was made about the Blade film, we both kind of speculated, you know, a couple of weeks ago that this was going to cause a huge domino effect for, you know, mm-hmm. the Marvel film schedule. And that was the case, unfortunately. Um, luckily, it seems like it's only really a handful of months for each one of these films. Um, but I mean, that's what happens when you have a universe that's so closely connected. Um, You know, I mean, it's not like they can have one of these films jump another one on the schedule because it might screw up like an ongoing narrative.
1: It does make me wonder, you know, if Kang Dynasty is going to have a very different team than what we're seeing in Secret Wars, which, I mean, is very reasonable to say because we'll probably see a lot more characters in Secret Wars. But I wonder if it's just a condensed version in Kang Dynasty.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is a strong possibility. Like, we want these characters to debut in their own films before, you know, we see them in Secret Wars. I mean, that only makes sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if they are indeed part of Secret Wars, that is. I mean, other factors come into play too, like, you know, the just the film schedule, the calendar in general, you know, what other films these movies could be going up against, you know, once the, you know, whole schedule shifts like that. So, I don't know. I mean, there's so many factors we'll never really ever know the truth exactly behind it. Exactly. They're not going to admit like, "Oh, we don't want to go up against, you know, Shazam 2 or whatever," right? Shazam 2?
1: <laughs> are you are you telling me Faki isn't scared of Shazam 2? Not Shazam 2, maybe the Batman. <laughs> I don't know about Shazam 2. <laughs> You're a jerk. Leave DC alone. Well, on the good news front, uh, we have a possible rumor release date for Spider-Man 4. Cosmic Circus has claimed that Sony and Marvel Studios are in talks right now to plan out the next Spider-Man film, featuring Tom Holland, of course, with the rumor being that Spider-Man 4 could come out as early as July 12th, 2024. Though it's been noted that if this date is true, that would probably mean that the Thunderbolts film, which is set for July 26th, may get pushed a little bit to make some room for the web crawler
2: yeah i could absolutely see that happening like if this is just a date that sony is like dead set on Mm -hmm. i don't think the mcu would want to compete against you know its own film even though spider-man's not solely you know you know the mcus or disney's um it it just doesn't make much sense financially.
1: I mean, I'm I would go to both movies if they were coming no, out the
2: same week, you know, I so. agree 100%, <laughs> but you know they want that movie in uh-huh. as many theaters, actual physical theaters as possible where you're competing for theaters with yourself, mm. then, basically.
1: Especially like uh, IMAX screens yes, and shit like that. Yes, cuz mm.
2: when a big movie like Spider-Man comes out, you know, you've got like it taking up like 70% of all showings at your local mm. theater. And, you know, if you have Thunderbolts on its heels, that's not going to be the case. Then Thunderbolts is going to get short shortchanged. So it only makes sense for them to, you know, shift the schedule yet again around. So maybe it's not all good news. <laughs> 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 but I mean, we have to take this with a grain of salt, too. It is just mm. a rumor. But also, now that I think about it, I mean, that's not a lot of time, right? That's, that's a, a year and a half out.
1: Mm-hmm. For especially with effects with Spider-Man.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I'm calling BS on this one. <laughs> like, I have no doubt that they're in talks and trying to figure out where they're gonna put, you know, Spider-Man 4 and that, you know, Spider-Man 4 is indeed happening, but that fe- feels just way too soon. Unless they're like secretly in pre-production right now. and We don't know about it. Speaking of, you know, Sony and Spider-Man, have you seen those leaked uh, set photos from uh, Madam Web? I've seen a couple. It seems like they're confirming that, uh, that we're gonna have Ezekiel part of that story. Mm somehow for some reason <laughs> is that who they say is the guy standing there with the spider-man like suit on are you talking about kind of like over... spoilers we have the spoiler alert right on the top of this yes okay. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes there's a dude who's like standing there and he has a very you know at least spider hero like costume on uh, but then there's also another video of him like coming out of the subway or something like that. And he's barefooted in a suit, very similar to what Ezekiel wears in the comics. Mm. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know, Ezekiel is kind of like, at first, like a mentor to Peter who's warning him, it seems like about Moreland. But then we find out later on that he has other motives. So, mm. um, but I couldn't help but think like, man, Sony's really just biting off way more than they could possibly chew. Like if Ezekiel and Moreland was gonna like pop up anywhere, I would like expect it to be in like the Into the Spider-Verse, you know, film. Not not
1: here in Madame Webb. Uh, when I saw the picture, I thought that looked like Aaron Taylor Johnson. So I thought it was gonna be Craven, but I haven't seen that video. So I have no idea if it looks like a totally different person.
2: I think that was a case of people misidentifying the actor. You know, but I might be wrong, because who the hell knows what Sony's doing?
1: Also, we got a quick story just in that uh, Marvel's Nova Project is looking like it will be a Disney Plus special presentation in the same vein that, you know, Werewolf by Night was. Sources tell Cosmic Circus that this will indeed be another self-contained story introducing us, you know, to Nova. No word from Disney just yet, but there has been plenty of rumors regarding the live-action Nova Project for quite a while and whether or not it would be a film or series, which I guess now um, it's looking like it won't be either. But lastly, moving on, we have some horror casting news. Deadline claims that Nicholas Holt of X Men and you know Warm Bodies fame is in negotiations to play a part in Robert Eggers' remake of Nosferatu. Holt, if he signs on, will be joining Bill Skarsgård and Lily Rose Depp on this vampiric tale. Which is pretty funny, cause Holt is already set to star in the upcoming Renfield film, where he's playing a henchman to Nicolas Cage's Dracula. Deadline has also reported that Emma Horvath, who's uh, recently been featured in the Rings of Power on Amazon, will be on for a part in the Strangers trilogy remake. What film will she be a part of? Who knows, but so far my guess, she'll probably be a victim of our bass killers. Or maybe she's one of the killers, right? Uh, she could be wearing like the pinup girl mask if
2: they do you know, choose to bring that look back.
1: Always possible. There's a, I mean, we, we barely know anything about the film, right? <laughs> I just know why she has to be a victim, Christian. I don't know. She, she gives it's, me victim like, face, you know?
2: It's like you're basing that on, like, you know, 40 years of slasher films or something. <laughs> All right, Christian, the time has finally arrived. Let's go ahead and break down the finale of She-Hulk.
0: Warning, spoiler alert. Major spoilers for She-Hulk ahead. You have been warned. Jennifer Walters, Esquire lawyer millennial searching for a way to balance a career and her personal life then an accidental dose of gamma radiated blood alters her body chemistry and now when jennifer walters grows angry or outraged a startling metamorphosis occurs the creature is driven by rage
1: and pursued by online trolls.
0: Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry.
1: The finale kicks off with a recap of everything that's happened so far, but in the style of the 1970s Incredible Hulk opening, even giving us a non-CGI version of the Savage She-Hulk, which brings us all up to speed on why Jen was imprisoned after last week's events. I thought this was an amazing parody. I was
2: terrified of the whole like Hulk out uh, sequence uh, from the original like 70s TV show uh, when I was little. Um, You know, I thought this like (laughs) set the tone for really like how crazy this episode was going to get. And we'll talk Mm. about that later. Um, Although I'm not sure like what was worse, the live action version of She-Hulk or some of the shaky CGI (laughs) we got like throughout
1: the season. Mallory Pug and Nikki visit Jen, who's now locked up in the same way as Emil was at the start of this season by damage control. While Jen is dead focused on bringing intelligentsia to justice, Mallory tries to rein her in in explaining she needs to focus on her own case instead in which a bargain has already been devised as Jen is offered the same fate as Emil Mill to never use her powers again, which Jen reluctantly accepts. I just don't know about the legality
2: of this plea deal. Like, she didn't murder anyone. She smashed no. a couple
1: TVs. So doesn't, so, I mean, so doesn't this seem a little extreme here? I guess. But if you think about how easily Emil could have escaped that prison in general. <laughs> no, I, yeah, yeah, it's not really that big of a threat being, like, <laughs> held captive by damage control, I
2: guess. But still, I mean... <laughs> So you can't use your powers whatsoever because you commit like one crime, you know? I mean, that's that. I don't know. That seems a bit extreme, but it is what it
1: is. I mean, she did a bunch of property damage last week, and no one yes! came after I her. I mean, she
2: destroyed a parking garage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I feel like Kevin Foggy's is gonna have to eventually like give us more details on exactly like how they're like policing their you know superheroes. Especially now that the uh, Sokovia Accords are no longer a
1: thing. Uh, Matt Murdock can't save every hero, you know, from legal troubles. That, That is true. He's going to try that. For the first half of this episode, we kind of see Jen really struggling to gain some control over her life as now not being allowed to be She-Hulk. Jen is of course fired from, you know, GLK and H, which was the last firm that would have actually accepted her, which of course then leads her to move out of her apartment and back in with her family all while still being hounded by the media about what went down. I did think it was a little bogus that her friends all said, we're going to keep our jobs, though. We're not following you. <laughs> I mean, you can't really blame them. Those are probably a couple
2: of really, like, high-paid jobs at that firm, I'm guessing. So, and they they prove their worth later on in the episode, right? Solidarity, Damon. <laughs> <Fuck> Solidarity. <that. laughs> Money talks, Christian. Clearly. Like, if Manscaped wants to give me some extra scratch to, like, get rid of you, I mean, I, I'm all ears. <laughs> They know my
1: email. Can't shave away a good editor, all (laughs) right? Oh, you want to make (laughs) a (laughs) bet? Back at her parents' house, Jen is in full lawyer mode as she you know tries to build a case against intelligentsia and find out who they are Nikki who's there to help though gets quickly distracted by Jen's mom who you know shares a video of Jen dancing back in her college days also Dennis Bukowski is of course going on the news and claiming that they dated and you know that she was a mess before any of this accident ever happened which just causes Jen to be even more overwhelmed by the situation and as she breaks the fourth wall, tries to understand why her story is just turning out like this, in which she again tries to reach out to Bruce, which gets no answer. Then she thinks about a meal and decides to go to his retreat instead. Meanwhile, Nikki devises a plan to get into Intelligentsia as she takes the vid of Jen dancing and posts it on the site, which immediately gets the attention of Hulk King, who invites Nikki to meet up under you know the assumptions that she's just one of the She-Hulk-hating guys from the site, which prompts her to then bring in pug as she makes her way to the meetup yeah it was at this point where i started to realize man this is all like unraveling rather quickly honestly the pace of the last few episodes i don't know made me feel like i was still like i didn't know where i was in the episode how long i had been sitting there Uh i thought we were already like a good 20 minutes in (laughs) At the meetup, Pug goes in with an airpod with Nikki on the phone. It doesn't take long though for Pug to run into tonight's coordinator, Todd, who unveils himself to be the Hulk King running Intelligentsia. Fucking Todd, I told you, Uh Christian.
2: (laughs) Well, I think MJF has taught us never trust a man wearing a
1: scarf. I was still hoping that it was going to be, you know, someone above Todd, but who knows. Jen gets to Emil's retreat, but he's nowhere in sight. Instead, she gets greeted by Wrecker, who gives her Emile's book, but that doesn't really do much to ease her stress. Instead, she wants to talk with Emil, someone who's actually, you know, been through all the same things as she has at, at this point. Which Wrecker states... He's gone to some events going down in the lodge. Well, I did
2: love the bit about the tea and the chicken blood and everything. I was, you know, with that, I was kind of hoping that we'd see an appearance from the rest of the misfits from the therapy group, you know, at least like Porcupine. But I guess that wasn't in the cards this episode for some reason, even though they gave us everything
1: else. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) could have actually seen him outside the suit. Maybe like PJs for a change or something. That sounds terrifying. But okay. <laughs> of course, in the lodge is the Intelligentsia meetup where Emil is going to be a special guest speaker, but in his abomination form, which is exactly what Jen walks in to find out. Now, am I wrong here, Christian? It doesn't feel like Emil really knows what the hell is going on with Intelligentsia. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he knew or not cuz he was trying to empower everyone but I guess I, th- I would I would have to assume he knew what they were talking about before he walked out. I don't right? know.
2: Like, I don't know if he's like just one of these paid like, you know, inspirational speakers. They, I mean, you do tons of like speaking engagements all the time, you mm-hmm. know, when you're, you know, working that, you know, gambit. So So I don't think they clarified that at all.
1: Um, I mean, he does say this is a misunderstanding when Bruce later shows up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't know. Call me an idiot, but I trust him. (laughs) Because when he's apologizing, he does seem sincere. And I could just totally see like him turning into like abomination, just being a gimmick to, you know, sell these appearances.
1: This is when all hell breaks loose as all the characters and plotlines converge into what is a messy ending in Jen's story. Todd injects himself with She-Hulk's blood and turns into a Hulk, Titania smashes in through a wall for some reason, Bruce out of nowhere crashes the party to fight Abomination, and Jen just is simply not having any of it as she breaks the fourth wall and asks the audience, if any of this is really working for us. And then out of nowhere, the show exits out to the home screen of Disney Plus.
2: Yeah, I mean, this was batshit crazy. Yeah, once the Hulk like jumped in out of nowhere, I knew something was up. I don't know, like I love the idea of them really calling out like the converging reunion, you know, storylines trope that a lot of these genre series do nowadays. And it's not just Marvel. That's, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. really been something that we've been talking about for years on this podcast. I mean, they they do it in The Walking Dead. I mean, they, hell, they even did it in Stranger Things. This exactly, past season. Exactly, I was about to say. No, I'm a sucker <laughs> for it. Like, I love it every time, but they're absolutely right. That's a formula a lot of these shows use nowadays.
1: They call it out, but I, I mean, they're still gonna do it.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Because <laughs> guess what? Once again, like, I pop for it every time.
1: It works, uh-huh. so. Jen then pops out of her own show and busts into Marvel Assembled to confront the actual real world creators of the show, busting into the writer's room to try and change her ending. But all these writers are really quick to blame Kevin on the direction of the show. So instead of talking with them, She-Hulk attempts to meet the guy on top, which Disney Marvel does everything in their power to stop. However, Jen reaches a room where instead of meeting a man, she finds a robot named the Knowledge Enhanced Visual Interconnected. Nexus or Kevin for short. I think we could all agree that it
2: makes sense that, you know, Kevin Foggy would actually be like an AI at this point, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, I thought this was great once again. I-, I love that they went like full meta, fourth wall breaking like the comics. I honestly mm. wish more of the episodes did this sort of thing. Yeah,
1: because I was sitting there and I was impressed that they went for it, but I was like, the rest of the series, this feels so different. Compared to everything else we got. Yeah, I mean, they did tease it, but yeah. I mean, like,
2: this almost felt like the big reveal. Like, this is, like, the show's new mission statement. Like, they're almost giving us, like, the promise of the premise now going forward. Because if you think about, it, like, this whole season's really about, like, Jen becoming comfortable with who she is. Mm-hmm. You know, as herself and as She-Hulk. Um, you know, she's, you know, gaining her confidence finally. Because um, that's really the the climax of the series, You know, not necessarily some mad scientist in some lab, um, which there's nothing wrong with that, don't get me wrong. But I also don't mind a more personal journey where we watch one of these characters, like, grow into their own. And at the same time, if they could take the piss out of internet trolls, you know, critics, and hell, the MCU itself, that's all great too. And I think I just love the fact that, you know, like, especially the writer's room scene feels like it's directly out of uh, Burns' run. Uh, So, I mean, if we can get more moments like that, I'm all
1: on board. I love that they were all actually writers too. Like there's uncredited cameos from all the writers in that room. Oh, is there? That's awesome. <laughs> uh-huh. Jen, in order to rewrite her story, begins giving a closing statement to change Kevin's mind. Instead of giving us a show with a plot line about her blood and having a, you know, superhero-y ending, why can't she Hulk simply be a lawyer comedy? And that her real stakes are, you know, about her personal growth, which we've seen her struggle with thanks to you know her life falling apart right as she's learning to accept both sides of herself, which seems to actually speak to the Kevin bot, who begins allowing Jen to alter the story by deleting full plot lines. Jen would then go on to ask about, you know, why there's so many daddy issues with our heroes and when the X-Men are actually coming in, which, you know, Kevin had no answers for. And because this scene is definitely a play on Matrix Reloaded, She-Hulk is made aware that she will never be able to enter this room again after this, and before she. she leaves, Kevin smashes Jen's hopes of ever being on the big screen. I'm calling
2: bullshit on that one. I I do feel like Jen will be on the big screen. I mean, if Deadpool could be on the big screen,
1: so could Jen. I mean, Deadpool 4, She-Hulk's probably going to be in it, right? (laughs) (laughs) At least a cameo. (laughs) Uh But as we said before, I mean, this whole moment, like this felt like She-Hulk, you know, came to life. You know, she's really embracing who she is, everything by this scene. Um, And I really enjoyed that aspect. It really felt like Jen from the comics. Now back in the ending that Jen has created for herself, she confronts Todd saying that she will see him in court, then Daredevil shows up for no reason other than to just be there for Jen, and Emil signs off on being imprisoned for his actions. This all culminates in a Fast and Furious style meal with Jen's family and Matt Murdock who will actually be sticking around for a week. Suddenly Bruce appears with an announcement as we get introduced to another Hulk and his son Scar, which comes straight from the World War Hulk story. Line.
2: Well, I'm kind of hoping that Jen has, like, one more favor, you know, from uh, Kevin, and she could get him to delete that, you know, moment, because Scar looked awful. <laughs> like, I don't know what was going Like, he had, a, like, a weird man bun going on or something. I right? don't know, <laughs> man. Like, I don't choose to have a forehead like this. He chose that with that haircut. Insane. Do you think him showing up is more of just a sight gag, or do you think this is going to be a storyline that they explore
1: I'm assuming it's going to be a storyline that they officially explore in some capacity in the future. They they made it sound like they were going to introduce something with Kevin. Like Kevin was explaining like, oh, we're going to save this big reveal to set up for something else. Uh, I
2: don't know. We'll see. (laughs) I think with with this show, all bets are off, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I'm fine with that.
1: I think the main reason I'm bringing that up is just because, you know, there's potential that she, I mean, that Hulk's rights will be back at Disney within, like, what, the next few years or so. I I mean, that's all a rumor right now. Uh, But if
2: that is the case, I hope they choose to, like, go back and save this storyline, you know, for a feature like Hulk film instead of, you know, trying to, you know, tell it, like, throughout, you know, Marvel series and, you Mm -hmm. know, films. But at the same time, I could see this being the last we ever see or hear of, you know, Hulk's son. But, because it just feels like such a sitcom trope of, you know, like, it's, it's Cousin Oliver, basically you know, where they bring in like a younger, long lost, like family member to boost ratings.
1: As the show comes to a close, we catch, you know, She-Hulk heading to take down Todd in the court of law, where she is stopped by a reporter and asked about details of the case, in which Jen states people like Todd need to be held responsible, and that if you attack harm or harass people, She-Hulk's coming for you. So yeah,
2: for me, this season really ended on a high note. And honestly, like the last three episodes I thought were pretty great, probably the strongest of the entire like series so far. My only real issue was the three previous episodes Mm -hmm. were a little lackluster. Like I didn't think they're awful or anything. They just kind of dragged. Um, So I'm hoping if we do get a second season, there's more consistency, Um, especially now that we've had this like huge fourth wall break. Like I want more of that, please. You know, and more of these like offbeat, you know, Marvel characters making appearances. But I don't know, man, like I really enjoyed watching Jen's um, you know, story play out on the screen and I'm looking forward to more of it. So I'm going to go ahead and give the first season of She-Hulk a B. And now after the finale and getting kind of a taste of like how far Kevin Foggy is willing to let this show go. You know, when it comes to like, you know, the meta humor and then breaking the fourth wall, like I want all of it. Like, if you're gonna go big, go big, right? <laughs> but also at the same time, let's also sure up the CGI a
1: little. Yeah, I mean, they ended it in a way where it opens up the door to a, for a lot of potential with this series. I totally see that. But you know me, I I can't handle it when a show drags and gives me nothing in the middle like that. Uh, and that's what brings down my grade a little bit. And as you said, the CGI definitely needed some work. You know, I, I enjoyed what they did and how much, you know, Tatiana Maslany actually feels like Jen and, you know, She-Hulk in the comics. So I, I do give it a lot of praise there. Um, but I'm probably going to end up giving it just a C+. Yeah, you hated those three middle episodes a lot more mm-hmm. than I did. So, like, I would not recommend this to anyone without it you know just binge watching it in one go I wouldn't have recommended a weekly release no
2: and I can agree with that I feel like this is the first real like Marvel Disney Plus series that would have been better served just getting a full like you know season drop you know right at the premiere because I think a lot of people would have been less frustrated with those three like middle episodes. Well, for right now, that does it for She-Hulk, but as always Marvel fans, make sure to join us as we plan on breaking down all the upcoming MCU series.
1: And now we have a review for the Marvel's Halloween special presentation of Werewolf by Night. Warning spoiler alert, major spoilers for Werewolf by Night ahead.
0: You have been warned. Tonight, it is every hunter for themselves. Good luck, I'll be rotting for you but one of you is a monster masquerading as one of our own i can't wait to find out what breed of evil you are
2: On a dark, somber night, a secret cabal of monster hunters emerge from the shadows and gather at the Bloodstone Temple following the death of their leader. The attendees are thrust into a mysterious and deadly competition for a powerful relic. Werewolf by Night was directed by Michael Giacchino and stars Gail Garcia Bernal.
1: Welcome to the horror verse of the MCU, folks. This special took me absolutely by surprise. Just like with the trailer, they decided to go old school on us and give us a True to Hammer like film featuring what is a lesser known Marvel character. I mean, the announcement for this show definitely had me asking Damon immediately who the hell is Jack Russell, but like many other you know, less popular characters, Marvel have gotten their hands on. They brought to life Jack Russell in a way that you know not only makes me excited for the future of horror characters in Marvel, but also curious to maybe check out the books that inspired this version as that should honestly you know, be the effect these Disney Plus projects should have. Them getting to do whatever they wanted with the gore and everything just being so stylized made it so uniquely its own which is what keeps me coming back to all of these marvel projects and makes the future just look so bright here while gail garcia bernal did a great job as jack i think i was left a little bit more interested in seeing where um, laura donnelly's elsa bloodstone goes from here and i do hope that there is you know some big plans with the arrival of characters like blade for the monster side of the mcu and you know i'm still holding out for ghost riders official MCU debut as well. Either way, I was very satisfied with this special presentation, so I'm going to be giving Werewolf by Night an A. Damon, what were your thoughts on this first ever event? So when Marvel's Halloween special Werewolf by Night was first announced, I was surprised to say the
2: least. Like, while I love the idea of an annual special celebrating my favorite season, But at the same time, like, why choose a C-level Marvel character like Werewolf by Night to be featured when there are just so many other notable horror-related characters on your roster? And listen, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Jack Russell, but even in the comics, they kind of struggle to make the character really interesting. So what could possibly Foggy and crew have up their sleeve? Well, the answer is just a wonderful love letter to classic horror films of yesteryear. I mean, it was a stroke of genius to tell this story in the very stylized vein of Universal and Hammer. One of my favorite things about the MCU shows on Disney Plus so far is their willingness to experiment and give each series their own unique vibe, and Werewolf by Night is no exception. They bent over backwards to make this special feel like it was filmed in another era. I mean, from giving each frame an age look including including putting in cue marks, to filming it in lush black and white, making the gothic aesthetic really pop. This choice also served twofold because it allowed director Michael Giacchino to serve up the most violent Marvel film to date. Flesh is ripped and blood is poured, goddammit. All from the safety of the soft glow black and white. But most importantly, we're introduced to Marvel's horrorverse, A dark corner of the MCU we really haven't explored yet. We meet fun and interesting characters like, you know, Jack Russell, Elsa Bloodstone, and even fucking Man-Thing, and are put right smack dab in the middle of their stories. Which is wise because with a lot of questions unanswered, it really left you wanting more. I mean, I need more of this odd couple pairing of Jack and Man thing in my life. And I hope that this leads to an ongoing series or at least like more Halloween specials that happen annually where they could introduce even more horror characters every year. Or hell, you could even have it lead to a Midnight Suns event series or film. Uh, But anyway, Werewolf by Night is a must-watch for Marvel and horror fans alike. I thought, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Michael Giacchino did a fabulous job in his directorial debut uh, producing something really special here. Uh, Just a nice blend of two of my favorite things, comics and horror. So I'm gonna go ahead, I'm gonna give it an A. Here's to hoping this is just the start of a whole new chapter for the MCU. All right, Christian, let's go ahead and break down episode 6 of Andor.
0: Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for Star Wars Andor ahead. You have been warned.
1: We start at the morning of the heist as Namek, you know, confesses to Andor that he has been unable to sleep. Namik, for the first time really voices his displeasure and Andor not being exactly there for the cause, but makes it clear he believes that this will show the empire the rebels are willing to adapt to them and might actually teach them a lesson. Where Andor continues to believe the empire will not change no matter what they do to them. They simply just don't think anything of rebels. And as time goes on in the Star Wars universe, I'm inclined to believe Andor here. They do just kind of let shit happen to them.
2: I thought this was a really like insightful conversation between the two characters, um, Hmm. really giving us a look at their state of minds. But at the same time, like I couldn't help think that, oh my God, Namek is totally not making it out of this episode. Oh yeah. Alive.
1: (laughs) you will sleep when it's over. Yeah, Uh, he he sure did. It's like, yeah, no, this guy's goose is cooked.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's always like a telltale sign that a character's not going to be around for long when they get Uh a full, like, monologue like this in the middle of, like, a high-stakes episode. The Walking Dead loved this trope to the point where I was expecting walkers to, like, burst through the woods and, like, carry him off. That would be a twist. (laughs) Why not? Hey, I mean, didn't they actually establish, like, Zombies in, like, the Star Wars universe, there was, like, a whole book about, like, uh, death troopers or something, they they were, like, zombie stormtroopers, right?
1: Yeah, so, something like that. So
2: whatever could happen.
1: We then meet the Commandant, uh Jhol Bihaz as he describes the Aldani people to the visiting Colonel Pedigar, who is you know there to take over the facility and turn most of the Aldani's sacred land into you know spaceports. Here, Bihaz you know tries to essentially sell the idea of the Empire's future here on Aldani. As we get our first look at those embarking on the pilgrimage to witness the atmospheric event of the Eye. I also
2: thought this was a really insightful conversation because we really got an inside look on like how the Empire
1: operates when they're basically occupying a planet. Exactly. I mean, he literally is the embodiment of what Andor described before with them just being fat and satisfied. It it was pretty awesome to see, you know, just how true to that he was. Yeah. I mean, they literally visually show you Uh that he's gotten fatter. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well,
2: that's a bit on the nose, but whatever. Uh
1: (laughs) While communication is sparse between our two groups of rebels, we watch as they do their final preparations for the heist. On the way to their post, Skeen informs Andor more about the group. We learn that Tarmin was a former stormtrooper, which was actually pretty problematic for the group as Cinta's family was actually murdered by a battalion of stormtroopers.
2: Yeah, I mean, this really explains why Cinta has ice in her veins. Like she's all fucking business on this mission. I also like how a running theme we're getting a lot of these Disney Plus series is like people rebelling from within the empire. We saw it in Obi-Wan with, I think her name uh, is Tala, right? But it really gives you an idea of a horror you know, the Empire's committing across the galaxy, Mm -hmm. that these everyday people are finding the strength to, you know, break away and rebel individually on their
1: own. Yes, which is just more oversight by the Empire since they thought, you know, this would bring more people behind them if they got just people to enlist rather than using clones.
2: I mean, a prime example is what Gorn says to uh, the Commandant later on in the episode, where the Commandant, like, tells him, You know, you're going to hang for this. And then Gorn says, after seven years of serving you, I deserve far worse. It really kind of like puts in perspective of like just the atrocities. A lot of these like everyday people who end up signing up to join, you know, the Galactic Empire are being forced to
1: commit. Not to get off topic, but who hangs in the Star Wars universe? Like, why is that their execution method? (laughs) I don't know, Christian. What do you suggest? I don't know. Thrown into lava pit. I don't know anything. Everything else makes every, more sense. Not every fucking like planet is Mustafar. Like <laughs> true. Firing squad. <laughs> then just firing squad.
2: Like I can imagine imagine hanging people. Yes. Well, here's a morbid theory. Maybe they hang people so they can leave them as an example to other citizens.
1: I guess. I just. I've never seen a hanging why, in why anything we, why are in Star Wars. This conversation right now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Let's move on, you sick fuck.
1: Geared up and in place, Andor and company follow behind the Aldani people, pretending to be their escorts under the command of Lieutenant Gorn. Meanwhile, Sinta and Vel prepare and execute a plan to go and disable the comm system by taking an underwater approach. Gorn, playing translator, has the two Imperials, along with Jayhold's family, meet with a peace offering for the Aldani chieftain. While the chieftain speaks out in defiance of the Empire, Gorn doesn't really let Jayhold know the truth of what he's saying. But it's clear there is no respect on either side of this conversation, especially when the chieftain burns the Empire's hide offering.
2: I just love how arrogant J-Hold is that he isn't really expecting this chieftain to harbor any kind of resentment, you know, towards him. You know, or maybe he just doesn't give a shit.
1: We'll call a, a little calm A, little B. in place above the wall, you know, has put a signal jammer on the comms of the station that is manned by Corporal Kimsey, who we met last week. With their window closing in, um Terramin attempts to get confirmation that the plan is a go from Val, but she hesitates in giving the green light. Eventually, though, she does push herself past her nerves and gives the go-ahead, just in time as Andor's squad has to now follow the Commandant and his family back into the Imperial base to start our heist. I thought this was a nice humanizing moment for Val. She's been such a stoic, you know,
2: kind of leader to this point. Um, it only makes sense, though, that, you know, she would be second guessing herself. And it also helped uh, convey like how high the stakes are in this mission.
1: Exactly. I mean, everything up until this point is just tension, 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 just mm-hmm. until building to like when they actually start the heist. And I liked how it was paced up to here. Inside the blast doors, things immediately kick off with the group taking J-Hold's family prisoner. However, Colonel Pettigrew tries to play Hero, aiming his gun at Namek. As they all try to disarm each other and get the other to put down their weapons, Cinta and Vel then show up, with Stone Cold Cinta shooting down Pettigrew without blinking an eye. What a fucking badass. Absolutely. <laughs> I hope we see her again after this episode. I, I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> Cinta then stays with the family in the control booth with several other hostages and monitors the overall situation, while the rest of them drag the commandant to where you know the payroll is located, needing his handprint to unlock the gates. On the other side, Gorn is checking to see if all his men are in place during the eye before coming in. Inside, the group forces unprepared soldiers to then help load the coins onto the space freighter, which sends an alarm to another part of the base. And while all this is going on, Corporal Kimsey has been trying to figure out what's happened to the comm signal and accidentally stumbles upon the hijacked Imperial signal that the rebels are using to communicate with each other. Yeah, this is a
2: pretty big oh shit moment. (laughs) You knew things weren't going to end well for everyone once he gets
1: that signal. Maybe if Gorn had just been a little bit more lax with him standing outside of his position, he wouldn't have noticed, you know? That that is true. Kimsey with a small group of soldiers make their way to the vault where Gorn has actually joined the group and unveiled his betrayal to Jay Fortunately, when Kimsey shows up, With a couple of men, the Commandant begins passing out from a heart attack after you know being forced to move all this payroll, and the overall situation, I guess, was just too much stress for him. Ultimately, this just gives away the operation as blaster fire just goes off between the two groups, killing Gorn in the crossfire, all while on the other side of the base, TIE fighters scramble since no one answered the vault alarms. So for me, of course, for me, this was the only part of the plan that I had any type of gripe with just because I feel like if Gorn had went to Cinta instead and had called off the like, you know, or at least made an excuse to the TIE fighter, you know, uh, pilots, maybe that would have held off a couple more seconds for them to get out. Uh, That was the only thing I was like, why isn't he just because they're actually calling over to see what's going on. They could have said some type of distraction there.
2: I'm sure you could chalk that up just, you know, to the stress of the situation, you know, and not thinking quickly enough on your feet. So I'm fine with it because I'm sure like their signal getting intercepted wasn't something that they
1: planned for in their scenario. Oh, exactly. Belle, pinned down by blaster fire, asks for help, which only gets Taraman killed when he tries to reach out to her. Andor, while trying to start up the ship, gets assaulted by one of the guys that were originally, you know, being forced to carry on the credits. But Namek, who's been using the credits cart as cover, is able to get a shot on the shoulder. Man, I knew that big dude was going to be an issue, like, once he gave Cassian
2: the side eye. Like, he passed by him <laughs> and kind of, kind of, you know, just gave him a look. I was like, oh, this dude's going after uh-huh. Cassian at some point. And sure enough, he was fucking choking him out. (laughs) Well, I definitely figured there was going to be casualties on this mission. I was a little sad to see uh, Gorn go down because I I wanted to hear more of his story and like his Mm -hmm. experiences, but it is what it is. Now, I'm assuming he's dead because it it looked like he took the blast in the shoulder, but maybe they keep him alive for when the security officers show up and they can like interrogate him.
1: I mean, then at least he'll be getting the torture he says he deserves, so. (laughs)
2: I don't think he meant it literally.
1: Uh (laughs) Namek's position in general, though, is his ultimate downfall after they get Vel and Gein onto the ship, and Andor takes off immediately, forcing the cart that Namek was hiding behind to slam back into him, crushing his spine, which then Vel immediately gets a med spike to temporarily revive Namek, as he's the only one who can guide Andor through the eyes exploding crystals while TIE fighters are closing in.
2: Is this device that he's using, a Polaroid camera? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's a Polaroid camera that they just right? made totally... sci-fi style. <laughs> I mean, is Disney struggling or something budget wise <laughs> that, <laughs> that the prop
2: department's using an old Polaroid camera?
1: <laughs> I'm assuming it's to play homage to like how they would use old props back in the day. Just repurpose something and make it more sci-fi looking. Sure.
2: Or I'm just that <laughs> old that like there's generations who don't know what a fucking Polaroid camera looks like anymore?
1: uh, 100%. There are generations that don't know what that looks like. (laughs) Wow. Thanks, Christian. (laughs) It's all on their phone now, David.
2: (laughs) Uh, That is true. But anyway, I mean, this chase sequence was fucking breathtaking. I mean, you weren't lying about them using the entire budget (laughs) on this moment.
1: I mean, I like this scene better than the Kessel Run that we got in a Solo. I love that it actually looks like an eye, like that's how, you know, why it got its name, the way it's shaped, and looks like an actual iris and stuff like that, I thought that was crazy. Yeah,
2: you totally understand why thousands of people would show up every year to witness it.
1: As Namek, you know, gets the crew out of harm's way, we see Cinta has joined the Aldani people, as she will be left behind during this mission, which I guess was a part of their plan. So yeah, I mean, she just kind of walks off. Like, does she have an escape plan here, or... I have no idea. Maybe she just wanted to enjoy the eye. I don't, I don't know. Man. <laughs> well, like I said, I hope, you know, we eventually
2: have a reunion between her and Val, but we'll yeah, see. Uh, my main fear is that she just gets picked up by the security council and gets interrogated. I, you know? I could totally see that. She's not going to give him shit, though. No. I'll tell you right now. <laughs>
1: Outside of the eye now, Skeen and Vel argue over going to see a doctor for Namek whose health is failing rapidly. Andor decides to side with Skeen and they go to a doctor named Quadpaw who immediately performs surgery on Namek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quad paw for forearm man yeah whatever <laughs> at least he got a doctorate degree degree right like <laughs> listen for years you know
2: because i used to collect star wars uh figures as a kid i thought uh panda baba was walrus man so that's that's literally the name <laughs> they gave him on the package you know of his figures so it is what it is i could deal with that
1: he literally was the walrus Outside of the surgery, Skeen makes a proposal to Andor asking if he wants to take the money and run, you know, taking a 50-50 split with him, as he can't fly the ship. Andor at first is in disbelief, you know, questioning why someone who has a grudge against the Empire, you know, especially for their brother's sake, would betray the rebellion in which we find out that Skeen has never actually had a brother. And even though I still thought this was like a whole like test of faith for Andor, Skeen finds himself gunned down for his betrayal as Andor refuses.
2: Yeah, I did not see this coming. This dude has been working an angle the entire fucking time. What a dick. I know, right? (laughs) And if you think about the entire time he was kind of like bowing up on Cassian, was probably just because he thought he was going to get in the way of him pulling this Uh off, right? (laughs) Or even, like, that Cassian could be possibly also working an angle. But I I just love the fact that Cassian is not scared to drop a motherfucker. Like, (laughs) because my God, like, what if you were right? Like, what if this was, like, some kind of morality test for Cassian? Uh (laughs) (laughs) And Cassian just, like, cut this guy down. Uh, but I, that's what you get, Bab,
1: Right? Andor, with blaster in hand, takes aim at Vel and the doctor, who both inform him that Namik didn't make it and ask what happened to Skeen. Which Vel doesn't believe Andor's story about Skeen betraying them. Either way, Andor isn't asking for any part of the heist money, only what you know Luthen promised him. As he gives Vel back the Kriber crystal for her to give to Luthen. Before Andor can leave, though, Vel gives him Namik's manifesto as a Apparently, that was his dying wish. And
2: it really goes to show like how quick Cassian is on his feet that he thinks to like offer right away the kyber crystal. And I know part of it, it's just him being a man of his word, but like to grab the crystal off his neck and to hold it out as like almost a token of his honesty, I think was all the proof that he really needed in that situation. Because She probably also knows like how much that kyber crystal means to Luther. You know, even though he doesn't want anything to do with the rebellion You know, he still has a moral code that he follows. But with that being said, I'm guessing that Namek could sense when talking to Cassian like his desire to believe, you know, what Namek is basically preaching. And that's why he wanted to make sure that, you know, Cassian would get his manifesto. And now that he has that book in his possession, I'm guessing that's going to be the final step, you know, of Cassian being indoctrinated into, you know, the Rebel Alliance.
1: On Coruscant, we see the news of the rebel activity spreading. As first, we see the Security Council just scrambling together, then Mon Mothma, who during her speech, you know, for giving aid to the Gormans, gets completely overshadowed by the news alerts the other senators are receiving. Finally, the news hits Luthan, as while he's helping some customers out at his shop, one asks if he has anything from Aldani, as a joke after, you know, reading a report of rebel activity on the planet. In which the episode ends with Luthan going to the back and laughing in pure joy that the mission was, you know, for better or worse, a success.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a nice touch seeing like the news spread across the galaxy and really showing the weight of what they were able to pull off. Um, I love seeing Luthen celebrate because he knows an event like this could help inspire others and be the spark that really like ignites the rebellion.
1: You know, I've really loved how this has felt more like a short story. You know, this whole for these first six episodes rather than like, you know, an episodic adventure that we've been having. Like everything has just been building up to this one moment and it's really felt really well like handled. No,
2: I agree. I love a good heist film. Um, and that's what this feels like, you know, or like a Dirty Dozen film. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm really enjoying this series so far and I'm looking forward to see, you know, what's to come next. Do you think Luthen's gonna track down Cassian and try to convince him to come back?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like if he finds out that these are the only two left, he's definitely gonna bring both of them back if they can. If he can. And
2: especially with Cassian showing what you know he can pull mm-hmm. off, um, you know, with how crucial he was to that mission, like that's definitely a guy you want in the fold. So, and he's proven himself trustworthy at this point. My guess also is like once the Empire starts investigating this scene that they're going to, you know, end up putting two and two together um, and, you know, figure out that Cassian is the same guy that they were already looking for, you know, from Ferrex. By the way, make sure to join us next week as we break down episode seven of Andor. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Hey, you got bush? Well, you definitely do if you haven't tried the best products from our sponsor today, Manscaped taking control of your bush is important these products are so good you're going to be showing pride in your new bush free yard it's a fact that you'll have the best kept nut sack on the cul-de-sac so save big and be the most hygienic version of yourself by using our discount code 20 nerd for 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com.
1: Listeners, you know I don't got bush because Manscaped helps keep my rocket raccoon high and tight. Whether you're looking to go bald like an eagle or just in need of a safe trim, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game.
2: Listeners, the grooming package I highly recommend is the Performance Package 4.0. That's because inside the package is the Lawnmower 4.0. This electric trimmer is a Bush's worst nightmare. This trimmer is designed to reduce grooming accidents and shave hair on loose skin, thanks to its ceramic blades and advanced
1: skin safe technology. No need for night vision goggles, this trimmer has a LED light to allow you to mow the lawn in the dark. It's basic landscaping. When you trim the hedges, the tree stands taller. The second best tool in the performance package is the Weed Whacker. This fine-tuned nose and ear hair trimmer will make sure your nasty nose pubes are under control.
2: Instantly add some pep to your step with the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Spray-On Testy Toner. With a performance package purchase, you get two free gifts, a shed travel bag and the patterned high performance reduced chafing Manscaped boxers. They have a bunch of other products on their website to help you maximize your confidence and grooming
1: gain. So listeners, get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. Kate Bush may be trending at the moment, but your bush needs some help. That's right, so make sure you're running up that hill and get 20% off and free shipping at
2: Manscaped.com by using our code 20NerdShow. It's time to level up your grooming game with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped.
0: Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for House of the Dragon ahead. You have been warned. You may run your house as you see fit,
1: but you will not decide the future of mine. My house survived the doom and a thousand tribulations besides,
0: and gods be damned. I will not see it ended on the account of this, say it, our children are
1: BASTARDS! We have a ton on the show this week, so I'm just going to be a bit more brief about this week's episode. For starters, yeah, give Patty a fucking Emmy already. Uh, fuck all the other nominations uh, for next year or whatever, whenever the fucking Emmys are, his performance as King Viserys is just one of the most likable and relatable and powerful in Game of Thrones. This week we saw the official end of the King as he tried to bring his family together in one last stitch effort before his illness claimed him. Unfortunately, the emotional damage these parents have done on the kids has already, you know, stoked the events to come. As while the adults try to make amends in Viserys' honor, the kids don't really give a shit about making any type of friendship with the other kids. Everything was pretty much just laid out clear in this episode, exactly where you know everyone may stand when the battle begins. I think the only person I'm questioning now is probably just Princess Rhaenys, um, who before the court trial for the you know Driftwood throne really seemed to admit that she was going to try and take her husband's seat instead of allowing Rhaenyra's children but I feel like she may still side with Rhaenyra for you know her grandchildren's sake as they are now set to wed Rhaenyra's sons basically as kind of a workaround for the Valyrian bloodline to get what they've always wanted which is a seat on the Iron Throne and a seat on the Driftwood throne also I just want to say it's okay to name your kid anything other than Aegon I know he was a great conqueror and all that but at this time there are multiple boys in this clan named Aegon alive and dead that makes Alicent's confusion seem very realistic here as I even get confused talking to people about all the Aegon boys. Anyway, join us next week as things are about to get real explosive on House of the Dragon. Also next week I will be giving my official review for Rings of Power as well so make sure to tune in for that. Well alright it's time to get into this week's horror month countdown. This time we're talking you know our personal top five horror films of the 1990s. Damon, since I was only an infant at this time, what made the 90s stand out for horror well to say that the 90s was a transitional
2: time period would be an understatement the decade began with the end of the cold war and would see the beginning of operation desert storm grunge and hip-hop not only dominated the music charts putting hair metal on the extinction list but they also took over fashion and technology began to advance at such a breakneck pace with more and more homes than ever owning PCs, especially with the internet becoming a thing. Horror was also in a state of change with some of the bigger franchises running on fumes. The genre as a whole was experiencing a bit of a hangover after the success of slasher films previously in the 80s, leaving studios searching for the next big thing. Slowly but surely though, other subgenres started to emerge and evolve, and variety seemed to be in vogue. The genre showed off its versatility and range at the box office and arguably solidified itself as a true art form in critics' eyes, even though some would scoff at the notion choosing to call the more serious-toned award-nominated horror films thrillers. But horror fans saw right through that pretentious bullshit, because at the end of the day, no matter what the presentation, if the intent is to scare, then horror is the name of the genre. By the second half of the decade, slasher movies rose from their grave, like many of the mass killers that made them popular, refusing just to stay dead. This was all due to the success of Wes Craven's Ultra Meta Scream. So of course, studios, just like they did previously in the 80s, raced to replicate it, pumping out dozens of copycat films filled with wisecracking CW stars meeting their end at the point of a knife, all to mixed returns. Part of the issue was some of these movies were a little too polished and nerfed compared to their predecessors, many times choosing to trade in gore and scares for jokes and sarcasm, making them feel more like bad parody than horror. The decade would etch strong though, with films that would become trendsetters for the aughts, like the found footage phenomenon, Blair Witch Project, or Japan's Ringu, that became the catalyst for the J-horror boom of the early 2000s, and in turn, for better or worse, the many American remakes. But we'll talk more about that next week. Alright, before we get started with the countdown, I've got some quick honorable mentions. Uh, first up, From *Dust Till Dawn, uh, Jacob's Ladder, It, which actually almost made my list, but since it's really a mini-series, I felt like I'd be cheating, uh, Sixth Sense, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, and The Blair Witch Project.
1: Christian, do you have any honorable mentions this week? Uh, for my honorable mentions, I'll probably say From Dust Till Dawn, you know Sleepy Hollow, and maybe even give The Crow, which is more of an action film, but fuck it, I'll say it, The Crow. And now, amazing nerd shows top five
0: horror films of the 1990s. Damon's number five: Event Horizon.
2: Event Horizon is just the perfect merger of sci-fi and horror, giving you that ghost story experience, albeit from the confines of a spaceship, with a source of evil coming directly from the gates of hell. The reason this marriage works so well is it just doesn't get more isolated than space. The movie is genuinely terrifying and filled with shocking moments. Paul W.S. Anderson treats us to a tale of guilt and consequences as we watch the crew get judged for their past sins. I mean, I remember going to see this in the theaters and just half expecting it to be another alien copycat film, truly not prepared for the disturbing effed up shit I was about to witness. And that kind of lasting impression is why Event Horizon had to make my list.
0: Christians number five seven. Put the gun down. I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my sin. Oh, what's in the box? Not you give me the what's gun? in the fucking box? Give me the gun. You just told you. You lied. You're a fucking liar. Shut up. It's what he wants. He,
1: wa- so he wants you to shoot him. No. As Damon said, the 90s became the era of you know, the horror thrillers, and with crime dramas at their height, it's no wonder a film like Seven made its way to theaters. With a killer on the loose inspired to torture and murder each victim as you know a way to represent the seven deadly sins, we got the noir cop duo of uh, Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. This film is one of David Fincher's best as we get drowned in the dread of these murders taking place one after another. You sit there and you just desperately want these cops to make it stop as the tension builds to one hell of a climatic finish that has been ingrained in cinema forever. Damon's number four, Scream. I'm telling you, the dad's a red herring. It's Billy.
0: How do we know
1: you're not the killer? Huh? Huh? Hi, Billy. Maybe your movie freaked mind lost its reality button. You ever think of that? You're absolutely right. I'm the first to admit it. If this were a scary movie, I'd be the prime suspect.
0: That's right. And what would be your motive? It's the millennium. Motives are incidental.
2: Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson single-handedly revitalized the slasher subgenre and some would argue horror as a whole in the mid-90s. They reminded audiences why they actually fell in love with these horror movies in the first place. It's cathartic escapism. So they took the typical slasher film premise and they injected it with a level of self-awareness that would celebrate horror and the audience's fandom all the while not insulting their intelligence. Scream felt fresh and fun and really brought back that communal experience in theaters with audiences screaming and laughing together in a way they hadn't in years. And it was done simply by giving us fully formed characters to cheer for and a killer in Ghostface who felt unpredictable because they preyed on our pre existing horror knowledge by using our expectations against us. With this meta approach, Craven and Williamson showed us regardless of built-in clichés it was still possible to take the genre seriously and make it frightening again.
0: Christian's number 4, Silence of the Lambs. Oh to go home please. Please go home. It places the lotion in the basket. I want to see my mom.
1: One of, if not the most quoted film of my childhood, Silence of the Lambs, dark true crime horror leaves a lasting impression on all generations. I mean, who hasn't done Buffalo Bill's Dance in the Mirror at least once, right? All kidding aside, Jonathan Demme uh, and company take you on a psychological hell ride as you yourself get toyed with by the charming performance of Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. His scenes alone with Jodie Foster's Clarice made the film iconic. And while there have been many imitations of the pairing of Hannibal and Sterling, none quite compare to this one. It's a 90s flick with true lasting power. Damon's Number 3 The Exorcist free.
0: For example, a decapitated head can continue to see for approximately 20 seconds. So when I have one that's cocking, I always hold it up so that it can see its body. It's a little extra I throw in for no (laughs) action.
2: I must admit it makes me chuckle every time. So after Exorcist 2 was such a disaster, it's hard to blame people for not checking out a third installment. But what William Blatty, who actually wrote the original Exorcist, delivered with this film is a supernatural murder mystery that permeates a level of dread that only few films have ever reached. In this dark and twisted story, we watch Detective Kinderman from the first film, now played by the great George C. Scott, try to unravel the riddle of the Gemini Killer, who seems somehow to be back from the dead. Filled with surreal dreamlike sequences and wicked ghastly visuals, Blatty gives us another story about lost faith, as we watch Kinderman struggle with the meaning of it all in this unforgiving, cruel world. With Blatty at the helm, this is very much a writer's film. With sharp-witted dialogue driving every scene, only taking a backseat at time to some expertly crafted moments of suspense. The result at the end of the day is a film that many consider one of the best underappreciated horror sequels of all time.
0: Christians number three, Army of Darkness. Sure, I could have stayed in the past. Could have even been king. But in my own way, I am king. Hail to the king, baby.
1: If you listen to the show, you know I'm a fan of the absurd from time to time, and that's one way to, you know, describe the third installment of the Evil Dead franchise, Army of Darkness. If Evil Dead 2 wasn't balls to the wall enough for you. Wait till Ash finds himself in the middle ages fighting deadites. I mean, I talked about you know, Silence of the Lamb being quotable, but I think I say uh, this is my boomstick at least once a week. It's not a film to take super serious, and I'm sure as fuck you know wouldn't call it a scary film, but man is Army of Darkness a good time, with plenty of practical effects gags and horrific humor to make it a horror month staple. Damon's number two silence of the lambs
2: his real name is benjamin raspel a former patient of mine whose romantic attachments ran to shall we say the exotic
0: i did not kill him i assure you merely tucked him away very much as i found him after he'd missed three appointments if you didn't kill him then who did sir who can say best thing for him really his therapy was
2: going nowhere There's only a few films that have ever really left their mark on pop culture like Silence of the Lambs. It's the kind of movie that even if you haven't seen it, You could probably quote a line or, you know, recognize its characters. This unnerving psychological horror film transcends the typical serial killer tale and really helped reshape the way people view the genre. Anthony Hopkins, with a career defining performance as Hannibal Lecter, gives us one of the most charismatic horror villains ever put on screen. To the point because of his penchant of eating the rude, he becomes a bit of an anti-hero even as he manipulates and toys with the stoic Detective Clarice Starling, played by the incomparable Jodie Foster. It's their chemistry that drives the film as they play a game of mental chess for Starling's soul, all the while as we watch her admirably hold it together long enough to hunt down the real villain of the piece, Buffalo Bill. And really, it's Bill who torments the audience's nightmares at the end of the day as we watch this depraved monster hunt down his next victim. With all those factors accounted for, Silence of the Lambs is just the perfect storm of a film and is well-deserving of its legendary status.
0: Christians number two, The Ring.
1: The true start to the J-horror boom came with Ringu, or better known as The Ring, in 1998. And while there was a pretty successful remake in the US, nothing in the J-horror genre is quite as unnerving and ultimately terrifying as Ringu, who set you down a path of you know pure depression and despair like no other horror film could. Instead of those usual jump scares that are you know used to pop the crowd, you find yourself watching a story unfold with horror very subtly creeping its way in you know throughout the background without any music cues or violent quick edits which in my opinion immersed me more into the film and is why Ringu was one of the first films to be you know considered for my 90s list. It's a film with an unsettling presentation that leaves you more or less Feeling haunted in your day to day life after viewing it. And now for Damon and Christian's number
0: 190s horror film Candyman. Do I know you? Be my victim.
2: Be my victim. So Candyman's not only one of my favorite horror films of the 90s, it's one of my favorite horror films of all time. And part of that reason is because it still resonates today more than ever. In the aftermath of the horror boom of the 80s, the film managed to remind audiences just how terrifying the genre can still be by setting the high bar for all things horror. Its use of classic urban legends really tapped into fears we've experienced with modern folklore. It's those stories we've all heard whispered on the playground, passed down from generation to generation, brought to life, which makes it even more relatable. Bernard Rose's arresting visuals is both somehow gritty and gothic, and Tony Todd's performance finds the perfect balance between sympathetic and absolutely terrifying, really echoing horror icons of the past like Lon Chaney and Boris Karloff. The film is unapologetically brutal, with Philip Glass's atmospheric score heightening the tension. And the choice to set in Cabrini Green underlines the subtext of race and class. This allows the boundaries of mythology to be pierced by cold reality. In my mind, it's just a shame that the follow-up sequels never came close to living up to the greatness of the original, because as a horror fan, I feel like Candyman belongs to the same sentence when mentioning legendary horror characters like Jason and Freddy. Nevertheless, Candyman is easily my favorite horror film
1: of the 90s, and that's why, of course, it's number one on my list. So it's going to be a double number one for me as well, as Candyman is leagues apart as a horror film to just about every other pick on my list, because it has baked in multiple layers of fear that can still resonate with today's audience. Tony Todd's striking performance as the Candyman is what made him a legendary symbol of death in horror films to come. I mean, the man can just look in your general direction and invoke fear. But as Damon said prior, this story gives layers to our hooked killer and brought to life the horrors of folklore. After watching our number one pick, you will be counting just how many times you say Candyman out loud.
2: All right, Christian, we both saw film this past week. Let's talk a little Hellraiser.
0: Warning, spoiler alert major spoilers for hellraiser ahead you have been warned and now our feature presentation it's time greater delights await we wish to see you proceed feed it
1: their blood their pain all for us. A take on Clive Barker's 1987 horror classic where a young woman struggling with addiction comes into possession of an ancient puzzle box, unaware that its purpose is to summon the Cenobites. This is directed by David Bruckner and stars Jamie Clayton. So, David Bruckner is an amazing artist who felt like the perfect director to bring
2: the Hellraiser franchise back to its original glory. And while I genuinely enjoyed, for the most part, this reimagining of Clive Barker's horror classic, I also found it a little frustrating because it just never quite lived up to its full potential. So in this film, we meet Riley, a struggling addict whose life is seemingly falling apart when she unknowingly unleashes the sadistic Cenobites when she and her boyfriend come in possession of an ancient puzzle box. Riley has to race to protect her family and friends and figure out how to put the proverbial genie back in the bottle. Now, first things first, I love the overall look of this film. It's incredibly atmospheric and it feels like a Hellraiser movie, which is important. Uh, Bruckner does a wonderful job also making it feel like the characters are kind of trapped in the puzzle box itself every time the Cenobites show up as we watch like the surrounding shift and change. It's like their presence is like reconfiguring our reality. Um, It just added a lot to the presentation of Pinhead and crew who are by far the best part of this film. Jamie Clayton does an amazing job as our new pinhead and is able to give the character the same level of gravitas that the legendary Doug Bradley did with his performance. Also, I thought the character design for the Cenobites was really creative. I loved how they used their own flesh and like morphed it into their clothing. It just made sense for them. Uh, but at the same time, like the leather is such an iconic look that it was hard for me not to miss it a little. Uh, I also loved, though, like how they used their modifications to torture their victims. It was a nice touch, and it really gave purpose to their own personal aesthetics. Um, I just wish they went a little further than they did. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I'm not sick of Twisted, hear me out. Um, You know, the film is pretty graphic and gory, but like, (laughs) It just, it felt like they were playing a little too safe, at least compared to past offerings from the franchise. But um, my bigger issue with the film lies with Riley and her friends. They just felt like cannon fodder to me with their characterizations being so paper thin. I just could care less about the main story that got us to the puzzle box and the Cenobites. It's just a case of the ends justifying the means. We don't really get to know any of these characters' motivations except for Riley. I mean, one of the things that's so great about the original Hellraiser film, it's really Uncle Frank's story that fuels it. And we have a protagonist in Kirsty that you really want to root for. It's a fully formed story where here, it just felt like we were going through the motions. And that's a problem because you never truly get invested. But with that being said, at the end of the day, I have to be honest with myself. I'm here for the gore and the Cenobites. And as long as the film has that, you know, creepy vibe and disturbing moments wrapped up in wicked visuals, I'm pretty satisfied. So I'm going to go ahead and give Hellraiser 2022 a B minus. I do hope to see David Bruckner come back for a sequel, but maybe this time with a script that's a little
1: stronger. For me, I think I'd be able to let go of the paper-thin side characters if they were all victims in interesting ways. As sick as that might sound, I was pretty surprised at the, you know lack of creativity and gore with the Cenobites' kills. You know, especially with today's effects being able to give us something truly horrifying. And since I was kind of let down there, all I had was the tale of Riley, which. I could take or leave. Uh, something about this just felt that like they copied and pasted Rue from Euphoria into a horror film backdrop, and I'm not just saying that because you know both characters are drug addicts. But I did enjoy the design and presentation of the Cenobites themselves, I think the only thing I probably would have changed is made like uh, Pinhead's voice a little bit more clear, as there were some times it felt like, in my viewing experience at least, that the audio mix was all over the place with that voice, making it sometimes a little bit hard to understand what they were saying. So overall, I'd be willing to check out a sequel, but it's not necessarily something I'm pining for after seeing this. So I will be giving Hellraiser a C. Before we move into some wrestling, as we set up top, it's been a really slow news week, so uh, that includes gaming as well. Um, You know, when mods become the big story of the week, you can kind of tell there's just not much going on. Though, who doesn't want to be able to order dominoes in a video game like Oblivion? Either way, I just want to remind you that we do live streams on Twitch you know we've been talking a lot about clive barker films on the show and i'm going to be starting up the game scorn this sunday which feels very barker inspired also um, the resident evil dlcs are on their way um, as teased um, lately by namco which they said that they're going to have another showcase i don't know if it's going to happen before the release of the DLCs or if it's just going to be something after or on the day of. So we'll make sure to do some live reactions to that when that actually does happen. But either way, I will be playing the DLC live on stream. And we're also, you know, neck deep in Horizon Zero Dawn. So we're trying to get all that done before God of War Ragnarok comes out. And we started the quarry with our unpaid intern Katie on Monday nights. So make sure to follow us on Twitch for even more amazing nerd show content. There's always a lot going on over here. Now, Let's get into wrestling.
0: Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm not the same guy I was this time last year. I hesitated in May, and it cost me this championship. I went for the trios championship with my best friends, and we failed. And I've had to watch as week after week they seemingly disappeared. My old friends, they have disappeared. And for all that I did, I'm left with nothing. I'm left with nothing. So I'm not the same. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I can't sleep at night. I'm anxious. I'm depressed. The medicine is not working, but I am still here because I am a man.
2: All right, Christian, it's time to talk some AEW Dynamite. This week, they made their debut in Canada. Um, Overall, a hot audience and an okay show, I thought.
1: I enjoyed it for the most part. I think there's just like a couple moments where they kind of missed how the audience might react to things that bothered me the most. But beyond that, I will talk about it when we get to it. Yeah, I thought the match order was a little strange, but I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Well, before we even talk matches, we got introduced to our new broadcast team member, Renee Paquette.
2: I'm happy that Renee's here. Uh, I think she's
1: fantastic. Uh,
2: I hope that they use her uh, in a bigger role than just kind of like backstage interviewer. Uh, I'm hoping that, you know, she does like sit down interviews and stuff like that. Kind of similar to what JR used to do back in the uh-huh. day. I guess he still does it once in a while. Um, and like maybe even have her like do like, you know, off series or something like that. Um, but I don't know. Like, I get it. You're in Canada. I, I, I don't think this was a great way to kick off the show, <laughs> though. Right. Like, it's it's cool
1: that she's there and everything like that. But like to kick off the show with a, a Christian interview just felt weird to me. I, I guess it sets up the first match, which was uh, Luchasaurus defeating Jungle Boy Jack Perry.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure part of the interview was to make sure that the crowd wasn't just cheering for Christian the entire time, and in turn, uh-huh. you know, Luchasaurus. <laughs> um, I will say, for the Luchasaurus-Jack uh, Perry match, it was better than I expected. Um, I thought they had great chemistry together, which, you know, makes sense for a mm, tag team I would hope. that's been together <laughs> for a long time. But you know what? Like, I fucking hated every time the Hardy Boys, like, fought— You know, or even Mm. really like Edge and Christian, I felt like didn't have great chemistry in the ring, which is weird. So, you know, it it, it doesn't happen all the time with tag teams, you know, like former tag team partners. They don't always click well, like when they're going up against each other. So, um, but yeah, no, I enjoyed this match. Um, Still not buying Luchasaurus as a complete heel. Um, And I don't know if it's just because he's a fucking dinosaur (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's my main issue.
2: Like maybe if he takes off the mask or something, um, or gets a different kind of mask or different name, I don't know. It's just not clicking with me at all. Um, but I think this was probably one of the best Luchasaurus matches I've ever seen. Honestly, oh
1: yeah, especially um, on AEW yeah. by himself. Yes, yeah,
2: like a singles match. Absolutely. He really needs like an electric chair finisher, you know. And I was mm, hoping yeah. the finish would come that way. With Jungle Boy, because I thought that'd be fucking poetic. Like he puts him on his shoulders again and everything, just like old times, and he just uh-huh. murders him with some kind of fucking move. <laughs> that would have been great, you know? Um, like maybe some kind of driver from that position. Although that might be too similar to like the one winged angel, though. Um,
1: but he could come up with something, I'm sure. I feel like you could do like a straight jacket hold from yeah. that position and then pile drive. Yeah, it's easy for us to say. Uh (laughs) it's not our neck (laughs) but you know i
2: i I feel like that'd be perfect for the character but Mm -hmm. you know it's a little too late now yeah but just to see like jungle boy on his shoulders again and then he just fucking just kills him that man that would have been a great moment um but yeah no i i was i wasn't surprised that uh luchasaurus got the win here because it feels like they're gonna have to prolong this feud for a while since christian's Mm -hmm. injured um, secretly, I was hoping that, you know, Christian's injury was all a ruse and that we're going to find out that he's like a hundred percent work.
1: Yes. A really long work.
2: Um, you know, and then also he like takes off the cast or pulls out like some kind of like crowbar from it and just starts beating on jungle boy. But that wasn't to be, it seems like it's a legit injury. So, uh-huh. I mean, you never know with AEW honestly. So because they don't
1: usually tell you shit when it comes to injuries. So. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, Overall good match. I agree. Um I think the only thing I was expecting was Luchasaurus to attack again after the match. Yes. So just put the button on it for a little and bit. I think that's
2: my issue is like there's not that like next level killer instinct with Luchasaurus. Mm. I need to see more of that. We need to see him kind of like decimating people at the end of the day. I mean he's had squash matches. Um and there's been a few times where he's put a couple people through tables I- at the very beginning. But like I don't know, they need to do more of that, I guess, to kind of drive home that this is a different character now than, you know, the fun-loving Luchasaurus we all grew to love.
1: Exactly, because nothing about his mannerisms makes me think he really genuinely hates Yeah, there's
2: nothing, like, more vicious about the character right now mm-hmm. in the ring, you know? And while he wrestles big, he doesn't wrestle aggressive enough, you know, for me, at least.
1: But anyway, moving on. Yeah, there was no short of aggression in this next match as we had Samoa Joe teaming up with Wardlow to go up against uh, the Factory's QT Marshall and Nick Camarado. I don't know about you, Christian. I just don't need to see QT in the ring. No. You know, like, I get it.
2: You know, he gets great heat and everything. But I'd much rather have him out there managing for, you know, a couple of his, like, faction members. Yeah, I, I don't I don't understand. Like, put Solo out there. Like, have Solo in the match. Right? Like, he's talented. Like, mm. <laughs> I just, I don't know. Like, I feel like QT can get as much heat from the apron that he can in the ring. So, um... You That's know, fair. That, I
1: thought the match was too long. Yes.
2: Yeah, especially like, going up against, you know, Joe or whatever. Mm. Like, they should have just decimated them. So... um I don't know. Like, I don't mind the pairing of Joe and Wardlow as long as it's going somewhere. After the match, we had another confrontation with Gates of Agony. Uh, They came down to the ring. Uh, It became, uh, you know, a numbers game. FTR makes a challenge for Rampage, but they don't want to ask Joe or Wardlow uh, to be their partner. Uh, But since they needed one more person, apparently they found Sean Spears and dusted him off uh you know (laughs) to make an appearance in his home country canada uh i was surprised by this just because you know there are a lot of rumors going around that sean might actually be done with the company i think there was some kind of cryptic tweet that he put up and then uh deleted quickly so i don't know um you know we have basically like a mini like pinnacle reunion happening here i don't know if you caught it uh in the ring after they kind of chased away the gates of agony uh sean turned to wardlow and they had kind of a stare down for a second and then they shook hands
1: oh i did not act- i did not notice that yes
2: yeah, so it was very brief uh the director apparently didn't notice it either so <laughs> <laughs> but it did happen um and i don't know if it was just those guys going into business for themselves and like well we got to make sense of this we've been we were uh-huh. feuding you know um the last time we saw spears right I mean, next to, like, MGF, that was probably Wardlow's biggest, like, enemy. So, I don't know, man. I I don't know if this is going to lead to a fully formed, like, pinnacle reunion of sorts. But with that being said, I could also see Sean, like, stabbing FTR in the back next week, or on Rampage, that is, and, you know, joining with the The Gates gates of of Agony. agony. (laughs) I could totally see that happening, so, because he just doesn't make much sense right now as a babyface unless they give him a reason like oh i was underneath you know mjf's thumb and it was his influence and everything um you know he abandoned me um for you know stokely's crew so he's pissed off i don't know um so because i just don't know what you do with a pinnacle Uh you know like who's the leader what's their deal you know unless it's wardlow um You know, unless they, you know, join with Joe and form a new pinnacle, a new version of the squad. Um, But I kind of feel like they're probably going to end up having like Joe maybe turn on Wardlow. Um, You know, we get like a, you know, maybe a title versus title match somewhere down the line between those two. Because I love heel Joe, so (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that might just be wishful thinking on my part. But it'd be cool to see kind of like, you know, maybe like at the next ROH pay-per-view. You have like Wardlow going against Joe for, you know, the TV title.
1: I mean, as long as there's something for Wardlow to do, because even in this segment, it just felt like he fell to the background while all this madness was. Well, going on, Joe's you know?
2: so over with the crowd. It mm-hmm. feels like he's kind of second banana when he's out there with them. Um, and that's dangerous, like especially for someone that you have so much invested in, like putting mm-hmm. him alongside with Joe makes him almost feel lesser than right now so maybe it's a good idea to turn joe and have him go up against wardlow um you know maybe he can help him get back to where he was with mgf beforehand um so i don't know cuz i mean joe's a great bastard right <laughs> um yes. but i agree this kind of felt like a step back for wardlow especially after last week when he had that great match against cage um like that felt like okay they reset the table We're reestablishing, you know, Wardlow and his dominance and everything and reminding Mm. people like how great he is in the ring when he wants to be. Um, So I don't know. I don't know. Hopefully we get to see more one on one, you know, Wardlow in the near future. I agree.
1: Up next, we had a backstage moment with Chris Jericho in 2.0 talking about his match with Brian later on in the show. You know, pretty much just saying all will bow to the Ocho per usual. I think
2: this could have been done in a video package of some sort. Um, just reminding people what's going on. I think it was a mistake to show Jericho so early on, because, like, you kind of steal a little bit of that, like, pop from him when, like, he does come mm-hmm. out for the live audience. That's the only reason I'm saying that. Um, because, that's, I mean, it's a huge moment. He's in Canada. He's back home, basically. So um, so I, I did think it was a bizarre choice. Because if you look at it, it's also, like, you know, where Parker and Menard are from, too. So, they you know, I know they're the heels, but I mean that's a big moment for the crowd. So it feels weird not to do that moment live.
1: Up next we had Sneaky Swerve
2: defeating Billy Gunn. I love Swerve. Um I love everything about him. Uh he's so unique in the <laughs> ring. Um, I thought the match overall was pretty damn good, especially when you factor Mm -hmm. in that Billy's, like, in his mid-50s at this point. Uh, but he still looks like a fucking Greek god, somehow. Um, I I thought the story of the match was a little weird. Um, just because, like, he was working the knee, that seemed to be kind of, like, where they're headed, psychology-wise. And then all of a sudden, he beats him by holding the ropes with, like, a quick, like, pin, And the knee never really factored into that. So I don't know. Like, I was expecting, like, Swerve to, like, really injure Billy and then, like, that be the motive for the acclaim to face off against uh, Swerve to our glory, you know. um, But then after the match, we had Mark Sterling come out and tell us that he now has the copyright to scissor me. Um yes. so it looks like we're gonna probably be getting some kind of rampage match in the near future between I believe I believe he calls he called the team the varsity athletes because he also stole the copyright for the name of uh the varsity blondes. So now the blondes can no longer be Varsity anything, I guess. So I guess it's just the copyright of Varsity is what he's selling—the <laughs> use of the word Varsity. Uh-huh. So I guess this is his new gimmick: is stealing people's gimmicks, which is bizarre. I guess it makes sense for a lawyer, but I don't know. Uh, but he's using this to bait uh, the acclaim into a match. Uh, so I, I, I'm guessing we'll get some kind of announcement for you know a rampage next week or something like that. You know where they face off. Although I feel like. Did they not face off against the Acclaimed already? Um, Tony Nese and uh, Woods? I, I, I th- For some reason, I thought that was a match
1: already. Or maybe that was Swerve I mean, to our glory that they fought. Might have been, because I don't think they have fought for At least, I mean, they wouldn't have been able to go for the title. So it's still something different. I'm, I'm
2: wondering if they don't end up putting um, Sterling with Swerve. Where it's not a case, like maybe after Swerve breaks apart from Keith Lee, like it's like an enemy of my enemy is my friend type deal, yeah. Because I mean, what greater heat for Swerve than you know having uh, Sterling as his manager, especially after everything Sterling's put him through.
1: Mm-hmm. I could see it. I don't think he needs a manager. I think he's fine on his own. But 100 oh, you know, percent, just agree. to get him over more as a heel, I can see it. And I think he'll get over fine as
2: a heel you know, by himself. But I think mm. it's just another layer to the character they could add,
1: you know, that he's now with this slimy lawyer, too. Um, They'll copyright limitless, you know, when he goes up against Keeley. Uh-huh, right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I could also see Swerve being the leader of a faction. I mean, we've seen that from him in NXT already. And we know AEW loves their factions. So, because if you look at it, really, like, no one really operates on their own anymore. It's very New Japan.
1: Up next, we had a backstage interview with MJF who was being asked about, you know, what went down with Wheeler Yuta and, you know, William Regal. But where things got weird is when Stokely Hathaway interrupted and MJF seemed to shoo him off um, very intimidatingly and would then go on to preach about how he could have shook Wheeler Yuta's hand.
2: Yeah, and how he does he has to act this way to, you know, succeed In the world of wrestling, basically, like, he hates himself, you know, for being this way. Um, I don't mind them adding layers to MJF. I get it. Uh, And I think they're trying to play with the idea of perhaps, you know... A babyface turn for him. But I think part of that is really just like playing off of fan expectations right now. Because, you know, I think everyone's kind of, you know, speculating that they might have to turn him babyface because of, you know, the reaction he gets every time when he's out there um, in front of a crowd. But with that being said, like, this just feels like it's happening way too fast. Like, I mean, they've only been a thing really for a month or so like Mm -hmm. this kind of angle feels like it's more reserved for a group that's been together for at least half a year, if not longer. Um, it just feels way too soon to see any like tease of a breakup, you know? So, I mean, I'm guessing it's some kind of elaborate swerve on MJF's part. Um, I don't foresee them like turning him face anytime soon. Um, The only scenario where I could see it being a possibility is, like, maybe, like, Khan already had this storyline set for, you know, MGF, uh, you know, thinking that he was going to be, you know, facing up against Punk. Where I could see them doing maybe, like, a double switch with them, like if Punk was obviously still in the equation, which he's not. And we know sometimes Khan is stubborn when sticking to his storylines, um, but it just it doesn't make any sense, and it, it feels so awkward and weird right now <laughs> for what we've seen from the character, and especially with him like you know I don't know taunting everyone with you know the the poker chip, you know uh so, you know talking about like cashing it in at any point and really like antagonizing everyone with that. and the fact that he kind of brought up his history with Regal. Uh, briefly during the interview just makes me think like he's trying to get closer you know maybe to regal or you know we have a situation where we see mjf kind of like get regal to lower his guard and then like he just pummels him um and that just adds heat to the match between him and moxley uh, down the line because i believe mjf talked about in the past like getting rejected like multiple times by NXT. Um, you know, I know he like tried out for like Tough Enough or something like that. Uh and like Regal being so like being such an integral part of NXT, I could see him kind of like playing off of like, you know, that rejection and everything like that. Mm. And like Regal kind of like, fe- you know, feeling sympathetic almost towards him and then he just pummels him in the ring and leaves him like a bloody mess. Um I don't know, because otherwise, like, I don't see where they're going right now.
1: Like, I know they like to play around with the meta of his character and stuff like that, and they really, like, you know, want to build off it. But I don't I just I want to see the heel version of him win the championship. Like I said last week, you know, it's just it just feels right that we've built to this point that MJF would be a heel for his first championship run. Is there even another heel you think big enough to go up against MJF after he even wins the title? Uh CM Punk. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that's not going to happen. Uh, uh, maybe they revisit the Jericho feud? I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't want that. But like, he's the biggest
1: heel that they've got right now besides MJF. Hmm. I mean, I'm still under the impression that he's going to chip in, like, next week. Like, that's still my idea, that he does it on Cincinnati. I don't, I don't think so, man. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised
2: if it, it does happen, but uh-huh. I think they're saving that match for the pay-per-view. Like, I could see a situation where after MJF, you know, destroys Regal in the ring, Tony comes out, or, you know, through Shivani or something like that. And, you know, forces MJF to have his match, you know, um, face-to-face against Moxley at, uh, was it Full Gear? Is it Full Gear? Yeah, coming? Be fair, at Full yeah. Gear or something like that. It's almost like punishment. But, I mean, who knows? Maybe he walks
1: out of Cincinnati champ. I mean, I don't know. Speaking of Cincinnati, we had uh, a big face-to-face between Moxley and Hangman Adam Page next. I
2: thought this was a great promo by Hangman. Whereas last week, I thought it was Moxley's turn to shine. This week, it was definitely, you know, Hangman's. Mm -hmm. Um, Overall, I thought, you know, he did a a damn good job of, you know, reminding people who he is and, you know, why he's where he's at in the company. Um, Even though it seems like Tony sometimes forgets that. (laughs) Uh, But, I mean, after everything that happened with All Out, I feel like he was kind of like left in the boat without an oar if you will so i'm sure there was trying you know there was probably a case of like reshuffling uh you know that had to happen you know Mm. storyline wise um so i I don't know i thought this was really well done you know him getting a moxley's face you know you know, being pissed off uh, by the way he talked to him last week and calling him a kid and everything, because I, I did feel like he kind of lost a little something or, you know, just I don't know. He, he kind of looked bad, like letting Moxley just kind of walk away from him, almost like just like patting him on the head kind of suddenly and saying, uh, you know, gosh, kid, you know, not today. <laughs> um <laughs> So, I don't know. I, I thought this was great. I don't know if he needed to punch himself in the hat. That, that was a little weird, but, you know, <laughs> he showed some fire. Um, uh-huh. Also, this has to be the first time that they've ever made reference in a roundabout way to the Elite on the show since everything yes. went down it all out. Um, I also thought Moxley might have been taking a little shot at Punk um, with his comments about um, some champions holding onto the belt longer than others. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but he kind of made a little comment about you know, you know, some people can't handle you know being champion and everything like that, and some people hold the belt, you know, or some reigns are shorter than others. Um, so I, I felt like that was their way of taking a little dig at Punk. Mm-hmm. Um, since both times he's held the belt, it's been for you know no more than a week. Uh, so I don't know. Um, quick little sidebar. Uh, they're actually selling Elite like. I don't know, Canadian shirts, I guess, um, at the show and the in the souvenir stands. Mm-hmm. Um, the only reason why that's of note is because usually when someone's suspended, they don't market them at all. That's why like it was instantaneous, like they were out of like the intro, they're not in any of the commercials, they're off of the posters. Mm-hmm. Um so the fact that they're actually like selling elite shirts that were made specifically for that day is a little odd. So I don't know if that means like there's been some kind of progress with the investigation um, or if that's just wishful thinking on my part. But it is weird to be making money off of someone that you have like suspended right now. So and that, you know, from what we've seen, that's not usually how AEW does business. So the one thing I definitely didn't like about this back and forth was MJF's, like, sudden appearance, uh, you know, in the skybox. Um, They've been doing this, like, week after week, ever since he's won the chip. um, You know, whenever, like, Moxley's in the ring, you know, we get some kind of appearance of, like, MJF. Either watching on the monitor in the back, or, you know, he's sitting in a skybox. Um, I thought this week especially, like, it really, like, overshadowed... um, you know all the work they were trying to do in the ring um it kind of took like heat away from the exchange between Maxley and, and um uh... Page um cuz at one point like you know you know, Paige is really getting into, like, his promo, and then all of a sudden the crowd's, like, chanting
1: MJF. Well, the worst part is that it was right after, you know, Paige says, I'm going to be the next world champion, and then they all start going, MJF. Yes. yes, 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 because the camera cuts away
2: right away, you know, it's uh-huh. MJF, and he's, you know, you know, making some sort of face,
0: <laughs> like,
2: because <laughs> they even did that when, uh you know, Paige alluded to the Elite. You Ooh. know, they had MGF kind of like, you know, look sideways, um, you know, during that comment. So I don't know, man. It's a little too much, you
1: know, with, yeah, with, I, with the cutaways and everything in MGF. Yeah, I didn't need like MGF popping some popcorn, you know, and eating. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. I don't know.
2: It's a little too like Mystery Science Theater 3000 for my liking. Where I it just I feels like it just completely like belittles what's going on in the ring at the time. Mm. I mean, I've hated it during Moxley's matches. And I mean, I hated it here. So, I mean, maybe just like one cut away. But like, once again, I just felt like this was, I don't know, excessive.
1: After this, we had a short video package about the Danielson rise to power in Ring of Honor. Uh, becoming their champion at one point and then how important it will be for his match with you know Jericho today. Which of course led right into our match with Jericho, uh defeating Brian unfortunately, to retain his Ring of Honor world title. Unfortunately, you want to see the uh Ring of Jericho come to an end, man? Oh no, I <laughs> I just didn't want to see Danielson lose for the third time to him, you know, right away. Is it this is the second time, not the third time. Gotcha. So mm-hmm, this was right. the rubber
2: match, if you will. Um no, I agree with you to a certain extent, but I think Garcia, you know, being the one to cost Brian the match makes it a little better for me storyline wise, since I know there's a point to it. I'm guessing this is probably going to lead to like, you know, Brian facing off against Garcia for that pure title, um, which I'm fine with. So uh, at least they advance the story here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I don't like Brian eating so many losses. <laughs> that's, but my guess is he'll probably eventually get his revenge sooner than later also. Like, I could see him, like, maybe at the next, like, Ring of Honor pay-per-view, whenever the hell that's happening, like, you know, defeating either Garcia or, you know, Jericho. Like, maybe after Jericho goes through a couple more, like, former, you know, Ring of Honor champions, <laughs> that's uh-huh. when Brian, you know... Comes at him again, you know, maybe like being the holder of the pure title or something like that. And he like unifies the belts
1: let's say they did get me here in this match like i thought when we got on this podcast i was going to be complaining about you know 2.0 not stopping garcia from getting into the ring but then he did turn on brian there i i didn't actually see it coming there i should have you know we've talked about it for weeks the possibility yep i kept on telling you (laughs) what's gonna happen
2: (laughs) i thought it would happen later if it was going to happen i kind of wish it did happen a little later on but i get it um You know, once, just the way everything was set up in this match, though, and when Garcia got on the ring, I was like, oh, he's fucking hitting. He's hitting Uh O'Brien with the title. That's what's happening. It was just set up so, like, plain and clear. It was very WWE, which I get it. It is what it is. And that's kind of Jericho's gimmick right now, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's what sport entertainers do. They cheat. In the meantime, I'll be curious to see who's, like, the next person to face off against Jericho. Um, You know, do they go back to Claudio? I believe on Rampage this week, Claudio had like a vignette where he talked about like facing whoever the winner is of this match, no matter what. So I, I'm guessing that, you know, that's where they're headed next. I do like the wrinkle of. You know, Garcia actually being confused, though. It wasn't a case of, like, Garcia, like, pulling the wool over Brian's eyes this entire time, and this was just some big swerve. It legitimately seems like Garcia was conflicted beforehand, but after what took place last week in their match with, you know, Jericho basically teaching Garcia a lesson of like, hey, cheat to fucking win, man. That's what we do here. Um, Hmm. It seems like that helped Garcia, you know, make his final choice. I think that kind of storytelling is so much better than it just being some weird, elaborate swerve. How does that even make any sense? I watch you guys wrestle against each other and beat the <laughs> fuck out of each other for, you know, 15 minutes. So it being a real decision, you know, being made by Garcia is
1: just – a much better angle up next we got another backstage segment with renee uh talking with nyla rose who stole the uh tbs title last week um and anna jay came out to challenge for it even though she's not actually the champion so yeah so apparently jade isn't here (laughs) i guess not
2: you know nyla's just walking around with you know her title basically backstage and you know uh putting it up on the line You know, a title that she doesn't even possess, technically. (laughs) So uh, this is a really weird angle, uh, because Nyla stole this thing uh, from Jade, just like a heel would. Um, So, I mean, I don't know, like, is Jade the baby face in this situation? Or is Nyla the baby face? Like, there's no way Nyla's the baby face, because she's with Vicky Guerrero, and you can't be a fucking baby face with Vicky Guerrero (laughs) at your
1: side, (laughs) I hear you, so, but it feels like they're booking Dyla like she's the baby dude, face. Dude, if you saw this. that
2: Rampage match where she sneaks into the ring, steals the belt from Jade and makes a run from it from her with like the baddies chasing after her, you would not think
1: she was the baby I face. thought it was a funny
2: <laughs> clip. <laughs> it's funny, but she's not the baby. This is like two tweeters, like having a uh-huh. having a, a feud to have a feud, which is fine. Um, I like Nyla, so the more time she gets in front of the camera, the better. I think she's completely underrated on the mic. So hopefully this actually leads to like a full-fledged baby face turn for her. But honestly, unfortunately, this is probably someone just to feed Jade's undefeated streak at this point
1: sticking with the women we had tony storm and Sheeta defeating jamie Hayter and dr Britt baker
2: i was sad to see that they're kind of like in the death spot again uh this week because it feels like the last couple weeks you know they've been actually like sneaking onto the first hour um although they did get a really good crowd reaction Mm. This time around. Uh, And that's just because, you know, Canada was just super excited for AEW to be there. Uh, But I thought this match was good overall. Don't get me wrong. It's just a lot of times when they're in this spot, like the crowd's completely dead. So, Uh, but yeah, that wasn't the case tonight. Um, I like Sheeta getting the win. So I guess this is leading to a match between Sheeta and Tony Storm, even though nothing actually happened on camera uh-huh. to let us in on that. Uh, but they made the announcement after the show that now is gonna be getting a title shot against Storm on uh Dynamite next week, uh which is taking place on Tuesday. So I mean that's pretty cool, but it would be nice if they would have had some kind of moment where like Sheeta at least pointed to Storm's belt or you know held it for a second and gave it to her just to kind of like, you know, you know, tease a title match or set something up between the two. Um, because apparently if you pin Britt Baker, that means you're number one contender. Like, <laughs> It's like, wait, fair enough. Uh, sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> honestly, when this match was first announced, I was kind of expecting maybe Hater getting the pin on uh, Storm, you know, maybe setting up a, you know, title match for Hater, uh, And that would, you know, we talked about last week, that would all kind of lead to, you know, the, the tension between Brit and Hater coming back and, you know, maybe they could start their angle finally, um, after, you know, God, what, a couple years at this point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> of them teasing no. it, it feels like. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Uh, but maybe them losing will, you know, lead to tension between the two. Um, but I I could see us still getting that like hater versus um, Storm match at the pay-per-view.
1: Well, I mean, the only reason I feel like nothing really progressed on this show with the women was just because Soraya wasn't around. Yeah. I feel like they just put everything on hold. Like, oh, she can't be at the show. Have a, have a fun match. You know, that's yeah. that's the vibe I or At got. least we got a title
2: match out of it, even though you wouldn't have known yeah. that
1: watching the match. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but at least you can make sense of Sheeta being a challenger
1: that uh-huh. she
2: picked up the win here i guess <laughs> wrestling logic whatever uh but yeah no i i it's still in my mind a guarantee that we're gonna see Britt versus uh soraya at the pay-per-view mm-hmm. um so i'm just hoping that we also get hater versus storm for the title well before we move on to the main event uh we totally forgot about the little interaction between uh Private Party, Matt Hardy, and uh, Stokely and Page that took place backstage. Apparently, Stokely has bought uh, Private Party's contracts. So, which is weird that that's a okay. thing. Like, I don't know if this is just an issue that Private party's having. Like, can you just buy wrestlers' contracts? Like, is does AEW not just have
1: their contract they, Do they have?
2: Do they have to have a re- representation? <laughs> you know that'd be like a sports agent like you know trading players like in the middle uh, of like you know a, a season or something it makes no sense it's not that's not how this works guys <laughs> it's that's a very like 80s like wrestling trope like i remember like bobby the brain he like trading like part of his like um group i think it was hercules to the million dollar man at one point
1: like, oh god it's like that's that not- <laughs>
2: It's like you don't actually own people. That's not, you know, how this works. At least in wrestling. That's not how it's supposed to hey, work. Hey,
1: everybody's got a price, um, all right.
2: Apparently, Bobby definitely <laughs> had a price. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're supposed to believe that like the managers like the GM and they have contracts existing with the managers and not AEW. I guess. I don't know. I that's the only way this makes sense. So but I'm over this. So, (laughs) this whole private party, Matt Hardy saga, this could end at any time, and I'd be okay with that.
1: Just let them fucking wrestle. Yes. Like,
2: I thought this was done with, like, after uh, uh Jeff came back. Like, I thought this was all, we're done with this angle. Like, I didn't even know that Andrade was with private parties still. So, and maybe that's why this is happening right now, because of the Andrade situation. I don't know. But, I don't know, but this could end at-, at any point. I'd be okay. <laughs> yes.
1: But on next week's Dynamite, we have the World Championship match between Moxley and Hangman Adam Page. We also have the Interim Women's World Championship match between Storm and Sheeta. We'll also hear from MJF, apparently, and we'll get an interview between Danielson and Wheeler. Do you think maybe they're setting up some kind of like
2: angle between Wheeler and uh, Brian?
1: No. I feel like if they're going to do anything, it'll be, at least for now, it'll be Wheeler versus Garcia, just because of the way that they stare at each other at the end of the match it just feels like they went out of their way like to
2: specify like this is you know an interview with wheeler and brian you know instead of like being like the Blackpool combat club Mm -hmm. i wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of like friction between the two like you know what about me you've been spending all this time focusing on garcia you know and i'm supposed to be your like apprentice you know I could see something growing between the two, but I might be just reading into things.
1: I definitely see a tag match in the future yeah. between Danielson and Wheeler versus, uh, you know, Garcia and Jericho. Yeah. Yeah. Jealousy is an ugly thing. So, mm-hmm.
2: I mean, if you think about it, last week uh, when Wheeler got beaten down by uh, MGF and crew it was only Regal who came out to make the save. Maybe there's some kind of angst because of that. You know, Danielson
1: will just say some shit like, you didn't deserve my help. (laughs) We haven't, you know, really heard the heel side of Danielson for a while though, so. Mm -hmm. But in the main event, we had Orange Cassidy becoming your new all-Atlantic champion when he defeated Pac. Uh, I thought this was a much better match than
2: the last time these two met. I'm really happy that Orange got A big win finally i really felt like i don't know they've they've been so like hot and cold with him lately Mm -hmm. like it really felt like once he came back from his injury like he was starting to get a push um and then all of a sudden like he went on a losing streak um i did like the storyline with you know pack you know cheating constantly to you know squeak out these wins um I'm hoping that AEW uh, addresses all the cheating that's been happening lately on the show. Um, They started an angle, what, like two weeks ago uh, during Kingston and Guevara's match where Kingston uh, ends up uh, putting um, Guevara in his submission hold. And after he wins the match, he keeps it on. So then Paul Turner comes out and disqualifies um, Kingston. And then the commentators informed us that Tody Khan has, like, put Turner in charge of, like, basically cleaning up the officiating. Because I guess, I don't know if you remember this, but on Dynamite, this was actually the Grand Slam uh, Dynamite. Uh, Mm -hmm. We had like three matches in a row where there was like cheating involved in the finish. So I guess this was a direct response to that. But since that happened, like (laughs) there's been no mention of it whatsoever. Um, And a whole lot of cheating. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Shivani has made little jabs at Jericho. It seems like every time he's done an interview talking about his institutionalized cheating. Um, So I'm guessing that it's probably going somewhere slowly but surely but honestly with AEW of late they've been so inconsistent you know your guess is as good as mine <laughs> um but yeah I hope I hope it leads to something so but yeah no I you know Cassidy got justice here Dan Housen stopped um pack from getting the hammer even though he was prepared for that apparently he had a hammer underneath the ring but once again cassidy was able to get the upper hand uh in the form of his superman punch we had people bleeding from their ear um i have no idea how that happened yeah i was like it's at the inner ear like where where is that yeah, bleeding was, It was a lot not a good sign <laughs> wherever <laughs> it was coming from uh, at one point in the middle of the match we had pack pile driving orange cassidy on the ramp and this was during the fucking commercial break uh this happens a lot like we have Mm -hmm. some like big moments happening uh during these commercial breaks and i think this is some kind of like edict also handed down by uh aw um i think they're trying to train people to like you know watch during the commercial break and not you know change the channel which i get but at the same time like Man, I mean, there's just been some giant moments that I feel like have been completely missed because it's taken place during, you know, picture in picture time. So, you know, like, because even like for me, who, you know, was watching the show pretty astutely, like all of a sudden, like, I'm like, wait, what the fuck happened? And, and we're lucky if we even get like a replay. Um, so I don't know. I get it. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I feel like having those moments taking place like uh, during Pitcher in Pitcher kind of takes away, you know, from the match as a whole.
1: No, absolutely. And luckily it was one that I didn't actually fast forward through for a change. Yes, because I've been guilty <laughs> of that also.
2: But anyway, it was a big moment for Cassidy. I'm glad that he's finally, you know, getting some kind of title run in the company because it's yes. more than well-deserved at this point. Um, did it seem like maybe he had his bell rung? At the end, like, I don't know if this was just, like, fantastic selling on his parts. But he just felt a little, like, I don't know, out of it.
1: It's it's hard to tell with a character yeah. of, like Orange Cassidy, whose whole thing is being sluggish. I don't know, man. Know? Like, his complexion looked all wrong to me. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: I don't know. Like, I, I get it. Like, he's supposed to not care. But, but it just felt like he was just struggling here. I don't know.
1: Either way, I do agree that it was a better match than their last one. I still think their first one was their best oh, bout so far. Absolutely.
2: I mean, it was Orange's coming out party. So mm-hmm. um, where do you think they go from
1: here with uh, Pac? Oh, with Pac? Um, I don't know. Because, I mean, he's been pretty much like the only one out of Death Triangle that's actually acting like a heel. Like the rest of them seem like like a face group most of the time, especially when they're working together. 100%. So I don't know if although, you know, he betrays. Although Pack
2: did she during their trios match to win it. And we didn't see the Lucha Brothers having any issues with that. And mm-hmm. it might've been a case of them just not knowing. Um, but I did find it interesting because during that match, it was Roosh who actually came out and gave Pac the hammer. And I mean, Death Triangle and, you know, Andrade's squad, you know, whatever the hell their name is right now, um, you know, they've been feuding prior to that Mm -hmm. so i don't know if we could possibly be seeing like you know them all teaming up together i mean but we don't even know andrade's you know status right now with the company (laughs) so i'm sure he's suspended but who knows how long or who knows if he's even coming back exactly i mean i could see them maybe throwing Roosh into that group i mean he would be
1: a good fit yeah death squared there you go
2: (laughs) sure for Cassidy, I could see him going into a feud with Ethan Page. We had Page a couple of weeks ago talking about how he's sick of all the gimmicks in AEW. Um, you know, he beat up his own friend Danhausen, um, and he did mention too that he wanted to go after the All Atlantic title, but you know, yes. Pack was the one holding the belt at the time, so it didn't really make much sense for Page to go up against Pack. Um, you know, especially with the way Pac was, you know, acting at the time. So it'd be like a heel versus heel situation. Um, but now that Cassidy has that belt, I could definitely see a feud between those two, you know, with Ethan Page and Cassidy, that is.
1: I'm sure they'll spark it with like Ethan just attacking like Dan Housen or something. And that's how they'll get into it right away. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Or just attacking Orange. So. Yeah.
1: But anyway, all
2: in all, a solid dynamite. I mean, there was nothing on the show that was atrocious, but. At the same time, there wasn't anything on the show that I feel like is going to end up being, like, super memorable at the end of the day.
1: I won't forget when Hangman, you know, hard-weighed himself. (laughs) His head got lumpy fast, too. Uh Uh-huh. Right?
2: (laughs) It's like, did he just give himself a fucking concussion?
1: (laughs) I don't know, man. That was... I thought he was, like, lightly hitting, and then I realized, oh, he actually cut himself. Yeah, no, okay. he was
2: trying to bust himself open, yeah. you know, the hard <laughs> way, but, it's like, dude, you're not Ric Flair. You don't have that, like, paper-thin skin, uh-huh. you know? You know, give it another 20 years or so, but, yeah, no, you'll get there, but not not just yet. Moxley, though, like, if he, if you gotta figure it's just, like, one good jab to the forehead and that dude is
1: bleeding like a Sith. Oh, I just assume he blinks and he starts
2: bleeding, yeah. you know? <laughs> he
1: exhales.
2: <laughs> By the way, make sure to join us next week as we break down Tuesday Night Dynamite. Well, that does it for this week. That's right, and as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe,
1: rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly, it sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked
2: about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more.
1: That's right, you can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some amazing nerd show
2: merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, David, what are we talking about next week? Well, Christian, we're going to be breaking down the latest episodes of Andor and House of the Dragon, and we'll also have a film review for Halloween Ends.
1: Plus, we'll be counting down our top five horror films of the 2000s, and we'll recap the latest episode of AEW Dynamite. My name's Christian. And my name's Damon. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show.